You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and George Cedarquist. All right, in this episode, we go inside the huddle with David Alden. The Olivier Award-winning stage director is creating a new production of The Flying Dutchman for Santa Fe Opera, and our very own George Cedarquist is in New Mexico with his OBS poncho, bolo tie, and handheld recorder to get the scoop. Plus, in the two-minute drill, ticket sales are inching upward at the Met whilst glitter rains down at Glyndebourne. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit that plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. And Oliver Camacho, what a deal that is. I think we could also say, to be more inclusive, that it's a coaster for any cold beverage, it's such true. as a LaCroix, or what are some of these new, these new brands of uh, sparkling waters that have flavors to them? Are uh, you talking about like the, what's the one that's like, like called like Liquid Death or something like know. that? I have not heard about that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, it's what all the young people are drinking, so Oliver wouldn't know about it. There's one called Waterloo, and apparently the watermelon oh. Waterloo is actually really good. Gets a good I rating. I was defeated. You won the war. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Cummings, what are you drinking? I am drinking in every take that was written eight months ago about tar, which I finally saw. <laughs> yeah. And I have many, many thoughts about um, people's media literacy because lots of people do not seem to have understood this movie at all. <laughs> well, we should we should talk about it uh, when we have time because it's a, a slow movie review. There's it's, it's a two a two handed. A two-handed episode. Oh, that's a double fister. No, there's only two segments today, so we can add some conversation about tar. Finally, your hot Finally. take on tar. Finally. Yeah, yeah the, the hottest take of uh, last year's Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. One of the world's most influential and prolific directors of opera, David Alden is the recipient of the prestigious South Bank Show Award for his production of Peter Grimes. He has won three Olivier Awards to date, including in 2018 for his production of Semiramide for the Royal Opera House Covent Garden and in 2009 for Yenufa at the English National Opera. He has also received the Bavarian Theatre Prize for Individual Artistic Achievement, marking a long-time relationship with the Bavarian State Opera. We now throw it to George Cedarquist for an exclusive Inside the Huddle from Santa Fe. George and David begin their conversation about the stage director's long collaboration with ENO. You've just come off a rehearsal with the chorus. Thanks so much for taking the time to do sure. this. You must be exhausted. Chorus rehearsal no, is always... I'm excited. <laughs> You're excited. Yeah, it's a thrill. Um, just to uh, put your work in context yeah. for our listeners, of course, you have a long association with English National Opera yes. and the Bavarian State Opera yes. and, of course, Santa Fe yes. as well. Um, New York City-born, live in the UK. But how did you transition from this country into Europe well, in your well, career? Well, I mean, I started my career in, in regional companies all around the USA. And then I think it was around 1976. I started like in 1971, just when I got out of college, I started working in America then. But I always had my eye on Europe because there's a, there was a different, I mean, there was a revolution that was going on beginning in the 70s. Uh, 
upper production. Upper production was starting to 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 become more experimental, more dangerous, more confronting these wonderful old operas and pulling out the new stuff and and denouncing the bad old ways of the world, you know, and, and not just taking the whole thing as a beautiful, sumptuous visual joy, but really getting into the nitty-gritty of these pieces. And it was really happening, it started in Europe, really. There's always been a, a difference of in aesthetic between America and Europe, anyway. I mean, America still has a certain lo Disney-esque love of, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas in Europe, in the 70s, we, people were getting, it was more revolutionary and dangerous and people were digging in. And I knew that that, that it was happening. So I started to visit Europe in the mid-70s to check it out. And I learned a lot, mostly in Germany. That was the sort of uh, hotbed of innovation and uh, our mod important modern artists, painters, designers were moving into the, the theater and opera and it was becoming very, very adventurous, and it was the, the whole opera style was cracking wide open, and new, new things were happening. And I started to sneak around Germany mostly, Berlin and <laughs> Munich, and you know all around there, and check out what was going on. It made a big impression on me, and I from then on, really, I was oriented more for staying in Europe. But I kept working in both, you know, in both continents, and then I started. Uh, to work in England, and that really became my base of operations. I worked at the Scottish Opera first, and then I started to work at the English National Opera, which at the mo that time was also bringing this new energy and this new ways of doing opera to the UK, and I became one of the mainstays of that at the ENO, the English National Opera. That lasted a good long time, and then meanwhile I was working in more and more in Europe as well, in Germany and in France and all over the place, and, in, and a lot in Israel as well. I really was covering, and I had a twin brother who's also an opera director. Mm -hmm. He sort of Christopher Alden. Christopher Alden. He sort who's also directed here in the past. He kind of took America as his place, and I kind of took Europe. But then, of course, we started to sneak onto each other's territories eventually, and we shared, shared, and reasonably well. And you've co-directed? No, we. One time, we were doing the three Mozart da Ponte operas with Daniel Barenboim and the Chicago Symphony in their sort of a in their in their concert hall, but it was staged. The plan was I was going to do Don Giovanni and my brother was going to do Figaro. We were going to share Cosi Fan Tutte together and we did the first day together and that was it. <laughs> bad cop, bad cop. No, 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 no. So I graciously let him do the Cosi Fan Tutte himself because he had done it more recently than I had somewhere else. Staying in England for just one moment, yes. of course English National Opera has seen huge cuts because yes. of the Arts Council England. Yes. What is your opinion on the present and the future? It's a, it's a horror. The ENO, there's always been a class struggle in England between the people with all the money who control everything. And then the ENO was created in the 50s as the people's opera. It was, everything was to be sung in English. It was cheaper to go to see it. You know, people were encouraged to come even though opera you know had a pretty bad reputation for being snooty and you had to get dressed up and the ENO was starting to break that and the ENO became very successful and really was rivaling Covent Garden the Royal Opera House which was the big theater that the, all the 
the, the, the rich people and the business people and then, then the expense accounts and the governmental figures went to. But, if, but E&O started, so there was always a rivalry. I mean, rivalry is healthy on one level, of course, in the arts. It's good to have two wonderful companies rivaling each other in the same city. It's very cool, but... But it, but the, you know, always was fighting against this in this this class war, the, this eternal in England for some reason, and eventually over the years it was very successful. But then it, people really started to man, maneuver the grants and the money less and less for the you know it was struggling more and more, and then it reached a terrible point last season when when the Arts Council made this decision. The, the, the ENO, they had this thing called leveling up in the UK, which means they're trying to become less London-centric and they're trying to move stuff around the country, which is, you know, a good idea, theoretically. But they decreed to the ENO that the ENO had to almost immediately pick up and move to some unnamed city in the north and pick up business, like, overnight, which you can't do. This was... Five, six, seven hundred people in the, at the ENO, completely displaced overnight, supposedly, and it just didn't happen. So there was a big outcry from the company, but also from you know arts lovers and opera lovers and people who for years had been going to the ENO and had, you know, it had. And the ENO was it was everything was really good. They they ticked all the boxes. They were they it became very. There were the reach out to to audiences, new audiences was fantastic. There were lots of free seats given away to young people to try and get them into the the world of opera, and it was working. And there was uh, diversity, a lot of a, a lot of. There was a real sense of black people being pulled pulled in, all races being pulled in, and starting to level that you know those inequalities out. It was all brilliant. But then all of a sudden, the Arts Council decreed you that they had to pick up sticks and move north. And they essentially came up with a short list of cities that yeah, you know, had mean, to, it, was, they, it was like picking a World Cup's host city or was, the Olympics. But they, had, they just did it overnight. And people on the Arts Council are who didn't really understand the, the, the sort of large nature of the opera business and how it's it's an ecosystem opera. You know, young people, young singers are trained and then they brought into the company to do smaller roles. And I mean, it's an ecosystem. And if you just grab away one of the main components of this ecosystem it's gonna how is this was none of this was thought through and this ridiculous decree that they had to leave right away people there was a lot of protest then and then the arts council came back some months later and said okay we're gonna fund the next season normally and then after that we're gonna give you money every year to be developed at least now they've been given a few years to develop the new you know story and find a new the proper new home to go to and so that's on that's on the way now but there's still like the sort of damocles over the eno hanging over it and it's it's not a good situation it's a bad situation santa fe of course is its own ecosystem you first directed here turn of the screw 1983 five shows after that most recently yenifa seven seven so i think this is my eighth show now wow most recently 2019 that's right. I yes, believe. Yes, Here we right. are, Wagner, yeah. Flying Dutchman. What makes Santa Fe so special to you? You know, I I first came to work here as an assistant director in like 1972. I was very young, 
Of course, as you know, I won't tell you how young. But yeah, and I did a couple, three years, and then I worked other places, and I came back, and from the first time I touched down in this place, this place is magic. I mean, this is the most gorgeous place to work in the summer, and the standard here has always been incredibly high for singers, discovering new singers, bringing some singers from Europe over for the first time, and then the whole apprentice program with bringing all these young people, the most talented young people, really in the country. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's really sort of paradise on some levels and the beauty, just the beauty of the whole place and the, the joy of that. I mean, it's like no other company in the world. D- does it make you think of Glyndebourne at all? Yeah, similar to Glyndebourne. Glyndebourne is all in, the, the theater is entirely in, in do- indoors. That's the difference here is that this incredible nature that you have and these, you know, the storms which sometimes blow through the productions very often extremely well timed for the opera you know the commendatory appears from the dead and denounces Don Giovanni and the thunder goes it's happened a lot it's very bizarre the famous uh, Dr. Atomic about the Los Alamos and the bomb and in the second act when they were trying to set the bomb off it started to rain and they had to keep waiting based on the history and that there was a fantastic storm in the second act I was there just as it was incredible it was incredibly well timed it was amazing I hope you get lucky for some yeah, uh, yeah. thunderstorms for your there's Dutchman. some good places in this opera where you, we could use help from nature right. but it does pose its own challenges I'm from Chicago and I've been gasping for air yes. the last week yes, that right. I've been right. here um, yeah the th- singers take I mean it, it varies for the different singers some people don't feel it. Some people st- take a breath to sing, and then they go, oh, wait a minute, hold everything. And it takes, a, you know, some people can take a week. Some people can take two weeks. It depends. But it's everyone, eventually, you, you conquered enough to do your job. Yeah. What about designing for this open-air space? It's, it's very different, yeah. I mean, the stage is configured in a very unusual way in that there's no flying. Everything, there's a ceiling over the whole stage to protect people in the from the weather i guess and but the sides are all open so um you just want designs very specially for this theater it's in a way it's more like the set sets generally they have to conform within this all there's already this this sort of architectural structure tension and movement in the building itself so the sets somehow it's like installations in a way within this other big piece of sculpture and one has to be you know you, you, everyone does it differently but it but it influences design quite a bit let's talk about the production itself then nicholas yeah. brownlee as the yeah. dutchman elza van de Hever, zenta morris robinson daland what is your point of view on this specific production well this the story of the flying dutchman i mean it's a you know it's a ghost story it's like a myth it's like a bizarre fairy tale but it has a lot of modern resonances if you start to think of it i mean this man this incredible industrialist for me he's sort of like a nightmare elon musk he's building up this gigantic industry on on the sea and he's trawling through the waters and he's you know how you see these on the, the seas and the oceans now these gigantic barges with containers i mean it's a bit like that but it's more of a nightmare it's like he's piling up the containers and in and trawling through the oceans and polluting slowly polluting the waters and he's suffering terribly because he's under a curse he can't stop but it's also one has the sense this is this is a capitalism running slowly rampant 
over the world and polluting things and people are being drug and it's it's like the whole world is becoming a machine and the people in 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 the, the sailors on Dalan ship and then the women who work back on the land while the, the men are off at sea everyone is like being drawn into this horrible machine this capitalistic machine and they're slightly they're becoming dehumanized and they're becoming enslaved really and somehow Senta, the girl who has been obsessed by this ghost story since her childhood and she dreams herself up into this thing in which he he appears to her. I mean, he really does come on shore and, and he finds the one, one woman potentially to save him from this eternal curse of, of, of sailing. That's, that's the deal with God. If he can find a woman faithful unto death, then he will be released from from the curse, but he's been already had many women, and they've all, at least in his opinion, been unfaith turned on him before they were married and were unfaithful. And he finally finds this girl, and in, in a way, this girl, she's not like everybody else. She's fighting the machine. She's on her own. She's kind of half crazy, but she's also really brilliant and, and educated. And she starts to somehow her obsession with this guy is also her way of trying to release the world from this horrible curse as well as just this one industrial so it's got this modern edge i wouldn't say it's immoral but it's got this modern take on it uh we're backstage after a course rehearsal for act three yes um when you're approaching a rehearsal this is from one director to another yeah. approaching a rehearsal specifically with the chorus what are you thinking how are you preparing and how are you executing well i mean i planned it all carefully in advance i know the score and the text completely better than anybody else often including the conductor because i'm very well prepared and i come in knowing what it's going to be but on the other hand the most exciting thing in a rehearsal is you can if you have it in the back of your head but then you can just take what people are giving you and go with that and somehow you know Sometimes you can, I can be completely surprised and come up with something entirely new, but it's chemistry between people. That's what rehearsal is, really. That's the, the mystery and the real excitement of it, just planning it and then doing it. Yeah, it's not so interesting. Planning it and then throwing it all away as you're doing it and doing something better with the help of, you know, all the people, the performers, the conductor, the music, music staff, the technical staff. It's this gigantic synergy between these people that's the great thrill of it for me in watching the rehearsal this afternoon uh your work is so physical yeah i'm gonna say choreography yeah as, as, virtually as a word. choreographic yeah i mean it's all about the relationship with the score with my relationship with the music it's all the whole thing is based on that sometimes it's a, it appears to be against the music or whatever but it's always that's the ultimate thing which is controlling me. And I have a great collaborator who really is a choreographer, Maxine, who travels with me and does a lot of shows with me. So again, yeah, but it's, it's all about that. Yeah. The Overture to Flying Dutchman is one of the most famous pieces of yeah. music in the repertoire. Yes. Uh, how do you approach that as a director? Do you leave it alone? Do you well, stage? Normally, in a, in a normal indoor theater, I'm not sure because this is the first time I've done it. But now, but that since we're starting, and it's still light outside, and it's a ten-minute overture, I feel that I have to do a visual, make a visual event during the overture. Hopefully, not so much that it. I still want people to be focused on the narrative of the music, but I'm given a certain visual storyline to it just because there we are, and you can't. There's no curtain here, you know. You're just there. You are, and the show starts. 
I've never done an opera here with a 10 minute overture. I've always done, you know, preludes, this and that, where you can, where the action is clear. But this time I'm, it's more of a pushing me more in this direction. As we wrap up our time together, we are a podcast that talks about the overlap between sports and opera. Morris Robinson, of course, yes. comes to mind, a former 1AA football yes, player. Exactly. Yes. Um, do you have a sports team that you follow? No. Did you ever play sports when you were a child in high school? Or? Well, I, well, I did when I was younger, yeah, but no. I've always been into, I've been obsessed by music, theater, and that's my sport. You know, really, I've, I'm, I've, I wouldn't say I've had blinders on because I'm aware of everything that's going on because that's part of the thing. That's a part of, that's what things like, everything should seep into a production, I think, even if it's unconscious. But no, my sport is my sport, yes. Flying Dutchman opens at the Santa Fe Opera on July 1st. David Alden, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, George, and thank you to David Alden once again. Uh, Santa Fe's Opera's Flying Dutchman opens on July 1st, so make it out there if you can. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week. Three climate activists interrupted a production of Dialogues of the Carmelites at Glyndebourne last week with glitter cannons and air horns. The protesters, who sported t-shirts and signs that read, Just Stop Oil, were escorted peacefully from the hall, and the opera resumed after a 20-minute delay. The June 21st performance of Macbeth at La Scala has been shut down due to a strike declared by a number of unions associated with the production. Union reps cited negotiation difficulties between the unions and management over this year's contract renewal as the reason for the strike. As of this recording, the June 26th performance featuring Anna Netrebko will be presented as scheduled. 29-year-old Italian-based Adolfo Corrado is the 2023 Cardiff Singer of the World, beating out two mezzos and two sopranos in the final round. His final program, all in Italian, scandalo, included Figaro's (laughs) Non Piondrai, La Columnia from Barber Seville, and an aria from Verdi's I Lombardi. 32-year-old Korean tenor Sung Ho Kim received the Song Prize after selections, offering selections by Von Williams, Robert Schumann, Rachmaninoff, Strauss, and Sung Tai Kim, with pianist Lur Williams. And 31-year-old Colombian soprano Juliette Lonsano Rolong, not one of the five finalists, won the Dame Kirito Kanwa Audience Prize with a program that included an aria from The Cunning Little Vixen, a zarzuela aria from Gonzalo Roig's Cecilia Valdez, Manon's Je Suis Encore, and Mimi's Donde Lieta. You can watch the grand final concert and the song prize final at the BBC's website, bbc.co.uk. Friend of the show, Kangman Justin Kim, has been named Dallas Opera's Maria Callas Debut Artist of the Year for his recent performance as Hensel in Hensel und Gretel. The annual award is given to a single performer each season in recognition of a particularly memorable and outstanding company debut, and is chosen by Dallas Opera subscribers. Kim will receive a beautiful Tiffany plaque bearing the likeness Ooh. of Maria Callas, Dallas Opera's unofficial godmother. Richard Mantle, the long-serving general director of Opera North, was knighted at King Charles's birthday honors, God save the king. Mantle is set to retire from the Leeds-based company in December after almost 30 years in the role. San Francisco celebrated its 100th birthday last week with a concert featuring conductors Sun Kim, Donald Runnicles, and Patrick Summers. Singers such as Patricia Rossette, Russell Thomas, Michael Fabiano, Nina Stemm, and Eileen Perez, a truly star-studded affair. 
Lots of friend of shows in that one. Earlier this month, baritone Tae Han Kim won the grand prize in the Queen Elizabeth competition, receiving 25,000 euros and engagements to sing numerous concerts in Belgium and abroad. His final round program performed with La Monet Symphony Orchestra included Rodrigo's death scene from Don Carlos, Piero's Tanzlied from Die Tolle Stadt, one of Mahler's songs of a wayfarer, one of them, and O oh, Du Mein Holder Abendstern from Tannhäuser. This year's jury included Jonathan Friend, June Anderson, Patricia Pettibon, and José Van Damme. We'll get some of those as friends of the show, yet yeah, just you wait. <laughs> In a follow-up to French contralto conductor shaming story, the one that never takes a week off, editors <laughs> at Diapason, France's classical music industry magazine, have come out against Yannick Nézé-Séguin for, quote, being anxious to show his solidarity with the musicians he directs at the expense of his colleague Nathalie Stutzmann. Crunching the numbers, the Associated Press reports that the Metropolitan Opera sold 66% of its tickets last season, up from 61% the previous season. Despite the uptick, the house is still shy of pre-pandemic numbers, with 75% of seats sold this season before COVID. On the other hand, the average age for a single ticket buyer has dropped considerably from 50 to 44. In trade news, Austin Opera has given a promotion to principal conductor and artistic advisor Timothy Myers. Beginning in the 2023-24 season, he consolidates his power as the company's music director. Meanwhile, City Opera Vancouver has appointed Gordon Gerard as its new artistic director. He's replacing the company's founding artistic director, Charles Barber, who retired in January. The Academy of Vocal Arts has appointed Scott Gazilek as its new president and artistic director. Gazilek, who has been the Academy's vice president and general manager since 2019, takes over for K. James McDowell, retiring after having held that position for almost four decades. Previous jobs for Gazilek include Palm Beach Opera's Director of Artistic Operations, Artistic Administrator of WNO, and an adjudicator for the Mets Lafont competition. On the disabled list, Russian soprano Elena Pankratova has pulled out of Teatro Real's upcoming Turandot. She'll be replaced by Angela Mead in the title role. Pankratova isn't the first to leave the production, however. Nadine Sierra previously canceled due to vocal and physical fatigue. Sierra has also recently pulled out of performances at Carnegie Hall. Elena Garancha has canceled her upcoming tour to Argentina and Brazil due to a leg injury. Isabel Leonard will fill in alongside conductor Konstantin Orbelian while the Latvian mezzo-soprano gets knee surgery. Exit stage right. Italian soprano actress and beauty queen Irma Capece Minutolo has died at the age of 87. Minutolo, more than her singing career, is best known for her relationship and possible secret marriage to Egyptian King Farouk I. Despite her tabloid lifestyle, she managed to build a respectable singing career which garnered positive reviews, positive reviews in Italy following King Farouk's death. Greek composer Yanis Markopoulos has died at the age of 82. Markopoulos was closely associated with the student-led democratic movement in Greece during the height of military rule of the country and is known for combining traditional Greek instruments with traditional classical instruments as well as instruments of his own invention. Known primarily for his film and television work outside of Greece, he had an eclectic musical output that included numerous ballets, operas, and oratorios. Sounds like you're a type of composer, Weston. And on this day, <laughs> June 19th, some first performances include Giacchino Rossini's Il Viaggio a Rhin in Paris in 1825, Emil von Reznicek's Die Jungfrau von Orleans in Prague in 1887, Frédéric von Flotow's Die Musikanten or La Jeunesse de Mozart in Mannheim in 1887, a correction to last week, King Roger premiered in Warsaw in 1926. That's an opera by Karl Szymanowski. 
1959, it was the first performance of Hank Bodding's Salto Mortale, a chamber opera for television. The first opera to be accompanied exclusively by electronic sound, another favorite of Weston's. <laughs> Birthdays include the Italian composer Alfredo Catalani, born in Lucca in 1854. American-based Hugh Thompson, born in Washington in 1915. German soprano Annalise Rotenberger, born in Mannheim in 1924. Canadian-based baritone Donald Bell, born in South Burnaby in 1934. And on this day, June 19th, it was the birthday, the birth of American soprano Marisa Galvani in Patterson, New Jersey in 1936. And that was your two-minute drill. You just heard Anneliese Rotenberger with Zeno Juranath singing the presentation of the rose. And that comes from the Carl Chinner film of the opera uh, Der Rosenkavalier uh, from Salzburg in the 50s or 60s, one of those decades in the mid-century. <laughs> they run together stylistically and aesthetically. Uh, especially at Salzburg, where um, everything <laughs> yes. is about turning the clock back as, as much as you can, which is really <laughs> fitting for Der Rosenkavalier. <laughs> Rotenberger is a really wonderful singer, and she sang everything from Sophie here to Violetta to Lulu, uh, but I really think that this role catches her like at her considerable best. It's one of the most silvery, just purest, floated lines to really ever grace this kind of music, and you should definitely, if you want to hear more, seek out the Arabella recording that she made with Lisa Della Casa. Uh, in the duet that the, the two sisters in that opera sing, it's almost impossible to tell who is who. And it mm. makes the duet so exciting and just really feels like they're channeling the intention of Strauss with all of those like almost interchangeable soprano-ish roles. Right, um, yeah. Where it's just like a filigree that that sits above all that orchestral um, density. That that bubbliness of that sort of uh, later period Strauss, would I feel like would be great with that. Um, I, I, one thing that uh, I am very bothered by in this uh, uh, on this day is that shockingly, I've never heard of Zalto Mortale, this uh, opera that was the first to be accompanied by electronic sound. 
And I did some digging and I cannot find it anywhere. And Mm. this is going to keep me up at night. So I'm putting it out there to our listeners. If you can send me a recording of Zalto Mortale by Hank Bodings uh, in any format, I will take reel-to-reel. I will buy a reel-to-reel player. Dutch Um, OBS Hive rise up. I will will send you two OBS... uh, (laughs) <laughs> lapel pins and one for each two. lapel yeah <laughs> it's perfect that's all you need uh one other thing i was uh, uh i was bugged by is uh is this this protest here uh i am all for stopping oil as well but um this is, seems to be the latest in a long line of uh the protests from the school of thought of d- disrupt something artistic Uh, And generally perceived to be upper class and see what happens. And I'm really not here to just, like, do Monday evening, Monday morning, Monday evening morning quarterbacking (laughs) um, or, like, theater criticism of, like, the passionate youth activists. Because, again, I really, really do sympathize with their cause. But I'm just not convinced that these protests, like, when they throw paint at the National Gallery, really do anything to move the needle. And I think it's much more likely that they... That it makes the movement look hysterical. Um, mm. at, le- at least in the social media posts this time, they drew a link between like the nuns being sentenced to death and big oil sentencing us to death. But without that link being explicit, the protest, like you, it just seems like they come out of nowhere. And I don't think that yeah. they have the impact that people are looking for without that kind of tie as to why this is where the protest is happening. So it, it becomes mean, too the, easy to like, you know, frame it as a completely irrational act, yeah. you know. I don't uh, know. I wonder if they think that people that are at Glyndebourne are like the upper crust of British society and like maybe actually have people that work for whatever uh I, BC, I just feel like know. it without like connecting the dots, it's asking the public to jump through too many hoops to actually understand what they're protesting. And and, yeah. and, and it's counterproductive. You know, they're, these, they're, protesting, these... they're protesting Carmelites or they're, they're protesting the guillotine. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, I feel like in, in this whole metaphor, I feel like they probably want to be more pro-guillotine. You know what I mean? I feel like... <laughs> I, whatever happened to a good old-fashioned Molotov cocktail thrown at a rich person's house? I'm not advocating that. They're protest- whatever happened to it? They're you know? protesting operas that don't have arias. <laughs> <laughs> Bring back the aria oh goodness uh yeah i mean i i i think i'm with you on this like i think this is uh something that uh, deserves a lot of attention deserves some protests it even deserves inconvenient protests and it might even deserve more than that who knows but maybe disrupting uh the opera is not necessarily the most effective we we've just learned that people really don't want to follow long trails of breadcrumbs to connect things that are very yeah. obviously connected. And these, this is not even that obviously connected. Well, honestly, just yeah, like... Think about it in an artistic way. You know, if you're going to do something like this, really, really make the connection so obvious in your protest that you're like, oh, I know that connection. I see I, I see there was thought put in there, you know? Uh, these I wanna... are, that's like expecting an audience to have the cultural literacy to understand a movie like Tar. Exactly, <laughs> which, as we know, when you ha- when all you have is a hammer to talk about cancel culture, everything looks like a nail, even things that are explicitly about abuses of power. Well, yeah. speaking of speaking of arias, which we were just a minute ago, um, the Cardiff Singer of the World competition. We have the new what a, what a delightfully ha- smooth uh, transition, uh, Oliver. A, a Bemos 
canto, can, can, cantante. What is what is we see? We have a pope. The white smoke is yeah, up. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Who and is the this, pope, Oliver? This time it's an Italian bass, and he did only Italian arias in it's his surprising final for in his final program. Yeah, and we. I mean, in a moment, we're going to listen to him sing, but the Guardian review of the final concert is maybe suggesting that he's a great actor and that maybe, you know, his um, his training as an actor, which uh, he was before he became a singer, uh, you know, makes him a very appealing uh, artist to watch. Uh, he's not particularly like... Um, it's not the most luxurious voice you've ever heard, yeah. but like in the clip, I think you will hear like there are some strong choices made and funny choices. Like it's like it, the, the clip is the the catalog aria. So let let's take a listen here. Voi sapete quel che fa. Voi sapete quel che fa. Che porti la gonnella, voi sapete quel che fa, voi sapete, voi sapete quel che So that's the 29 Italian, 29 year old Italian bass Adolfo Corrado, who beat out uh, four female singers, two mezzos and two sopranos. One of them, uh, I believe, in one of the um, earlier rounds is Nombulello Yende, the sister of Pretty Yende. So uh, I think there are two South African singers. It's also so so Nombulelo Yende is a soprano, and then there's a mezzo Sifukazi Molteno, uh, both apparently making very strong impressions in their final concert arias. Uh, and you can once again go to the BBC's website and watch the two and a half hour event. Um, I want to mention that the um, adjudicators for uh, this competition include Kiri Takanawa. Who? Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, Bernarda Fink is one of the adjudicators. Uh, also, the composer Erilyn Wallen. And, then, and Rosemary Joshua. So, uh, that is uh, a somewhat in, in, intimidating panel to sing for. We're going to talk about I'll another. Say. We're going to talk about another panel in a moment, but we should also uh, mention this audience prize, which. This year does not come from the five finalists. It comes from one of the earlier rounds. That was and interesting, too. Yeah, yeah. And this is uh, the prize that is voted for by the people watching at home. And I think because now Just this... Just like American Idol. <laughs> it is. It's exactly what it is. It's the American... It's the Cardiff, Cardiff Idol, you know? This competition is... <laughs> I mean, this competition is actually really fascinating. It sort of is like Eurovision for opera singers, you know? It really straddles that high-low divide. <laughs> it, it does. It's. I. I. I'm. I feel like a lot of big, big uh, competitions. You kind of know who the winners are going to be going into it, and this is one of the ones that's truly big and that's truly like large and significant. But you can still like have 
a sweep of winners that you don't know anything about, which I think is great. So Sung Ho Kim sang Let Beauty Awake from Songs of Travel, uh, Mit Mirten und Rosen from the Heine Liederkreis of Schumann, uh, the famous, uh, I guess it's sort of a lament of Rachmaninoff, uh, Sing Not Fair Maiden or whatever, Do Not Sing. Mm-hmm. Um, Morgan, audience pleaser. And then something in Korean called uh, Dong Dong Simcho. Uh, but he beat out uh, this uh, Nombulelo Yende, who was also competing for the song prize, who had a more kind of traditional uh, repertoire. She sang some Strauss and some Barber and some Grieg. Um, the other South African mezzo-soprano who had actually an unusual uh, repertoire, uh, some uh, non-standard rep, Hofmeyer, Tula Tula, and uh, a piece by Liverman. I don't know if that's Will Liverman <laughs> or who that is. Um, <laughs> he does and everything. So, and something by... <laughs> Will, Will Liverman's cousin, Bob Liverman. And a piece by Princess Mogogo. Or from Princess from Mogogo. Princess Mogogo. That, that seems like it's not a song. But anyway, she competed with it in the song prize. Uh, a British bass. He beat out a Canadian mezzo. Um, so yeah, song prize. It's cool. I'm, I'm really into geeky art song competitions. <laughs> you uh, are? I, yeah. What? And, <laughs> yeah. But also it's cool that like this BBC, the Cardiff competition does do like a song track and a uh, opera track. Not like that Marola competition, which like, Pretends that Zarzuela is a thing. Um, <laughs> they're, de- they're determined to make it one. They're doing their best. For yeah. their 150th anniversary, it's going to be yeah. all Zarzuela. Yeah, but but there are some years where, like when Jamie Barton won, for example, where she, I think she won both song and... I think um, Forostovsky did as well. Yeah. yeah back in so. the 90s. So anyway, I'm really into Cardiff. Um, another competition, which we didn't cover last week and we already had the results, was Queen Elizabeth, which was won by, recently won by a friend of the show, Samuel Hasselhorn in 2018, I want to say. Um, so I think they like rotate, like every year is not a singer year. I think they do like piano and cello and violin. So they've come back around to uh, vocal competition. And uh, this was won by, um, who is this guy? A t- tenor? Taehan Te- Kim. Yeah. But he's a baritone. Korean baritone. And this one comes with money. This one gets you get. But, but does it come with a beautiful <laughs> Tiffany uh, likeness of Maria Callas? I know. <laughs> um, really, every contest should. Yeah, this one comes with like um, you know engagements to sing concerts. I mean, I think the Cardiff one is more prestigious, but I think there's more like deliverables, like more like actual like tangible prizes you get from uh, from Queen Elizabeth. They give you money. And they give you gigs, which is all we want. We want money gigs. and gigs. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> this, the title of this show, money and gigs. I think the Queen Elizabeth judging panel was even more intimidating than the Cardiff one. Honestly, uh, just the short list of this Queen Elizabeth panel is Jonathan Friend, who is our the Mets uh, artistic uh, yeah. cast, casting director, right? Not yeah. not as a Jonathan Friend of the show yet. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Sumi Joe. Uh, Christ, uh, Christoph Pregardien, the famous uh, German leader specialist. Uh, Helmut Deutsch, the famous mm. uh, accompanist to Singers of the Stars. Uh, Patricia Pettibon, crazy ass, bad crazy. <laughs> the most Sopranos. recent Baroque redhead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> to take the scene by storm. Yeah. Bejun Mehta. June Anderson. Oh, my God. Amazing. Uh, Bernarda Fink, I guess she's like doing all the, she's doing the competition circuit. And then Jose Van Damme, which to me is probably the most intimidating person to sing for. I mean, he is 
He's an institution. I mean, he's on like 952 different recordings of operas. Like, if you need a francophone bass, Jose Van Damme is the one. Yeah. But I mean, if you're like, I mean, I would say that Christopher Gardien is like an intellectual in this group. But if you're looking at like intellectualism in singing, uh, I think he sort of takes the cake um, as the. This would be quite the basketball team. I'm just, I'm just (laughs) envisioning it right now. Maybe that should be our next. segment that we do for OBS. Create like. the scariest judging panel you can imagine. <laughs> I mean, you just put Oliver Camacho in there and you're you're halfway you're Everybody halfway thinks there. I'm so judgy. <laughs> uh moving anyway, on from that comment. But just quickly, there was a movie back when I was a kid called uh The Singing Teacher, I think it was called, with Jose Van Damme uh teaching a soprano and a tenor. And like he basically drown he waterboards the tenor to get him to learn how to breathe. <laughs> and uh, and that, yeah. Okay, that's pretty bad. That's pretty intense. Oh goodness gracious. Okay, the Met. The Met. I feel like that's uh, the the big story here or is it that big? That's the real question. So the numbers are up at the Met a little bit, you know, 60 something is not great. That's uh technically a passing score in most schools here in the US. Um but barely. Um not as bad as 61. Uh, I, I think that uh, they, the Met also attributes at least two per, the 2% loss to their cyber attack, right? Um, which might be generous, but I don't know how they calculate that, so I can't really question them on it. Um, I, I think what's more interesting in like the actual numbers themselves here, though, is that it's the reversal of a trend, which is right. kind of that important. That is true. That is, that is important, and, and I, I think it's genuinely encouraging to see the numbers go up i i would have liked to see the numbers go up more obviously right. and i think that i think the growth is slow but considering that they were only in the 70 something percentile before the pandemic not that bad considering i think the big number that i'm excited by is the uh, average age for single ticket buyers dropping from 50 to 44 that's a big drop um and Take that uh, zachary wolf yeah exactly i mean um i mean maybe it's just because it's just because everyone's dying off but uh i think that it, there's you know i i i do think we have been at the point for what feels like my whole life you know whenever i went to the opera you know i was like i am by far the youngest person in this and room. the tallest and the tallest uh except weirdly at the theater Andervin. everyone's tall there um uh, that uh, there's just something uh, there's what I'm always the most conscious when I go to an opera and I am evaluating the audience. The first thing I look at is not really how full it is. It's not really how enthusiastic they seem to be. It's always age. Um, and uh, I think it's genuinely encouraging that that number is trending down in such a significant way. That's a, that's a six year difference. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, uh, as I get older and, you know, creep up to that average age, it's nice to know that the that I am not necessarily the only young ish person anymore. Yeah. Um, and that's that's especially been a huge, huge problem at the Met specifically, because they've always catered to the older, wealthier, more conservative demographic. And I think that maybe their new strategy of like leaning more heavily on new works and advertising those more heavily might be paying off in that regard. I, I mean, we'll it's a see. bit of an it's a bit of an ocean liner with a small rudder. So, yeah. like, to have a major change, like that, is a a pretty large jump in the average change. With yeah. it's a huge auditorium. You have and just 
the way numbers work, that means that they have really brought in a lot of young people to the opera who were not yeah. previously going. Yeah. And so the question is going to be, can they get them to keep coming back? That's the trick. And that, that that's the thing we've talked about before uh, with a lot of, uh, you know, when they announced their new season and, and it's, you know, uh, it's they're, they're playing all the same new operas again. Like, will they come back a second time? That's the question. Um, maybe they will. Maybe they won't. This we're I think we're kind of in uncharted territory for a company of this size. Um, at least, you know, not we haven't seen this much new work at the Met since probably 19. 19- uh, well, pre-World War One, I, I think. Yeah, uh, since they were premiering La Fanchula del West. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, uh, that, that's the reason, you know, uh, a little piece of history for you. The reason the Met has been a conservative house is because um, uh, World War One hit, German works got banned, uh, and because Germany was the heyday of new, the, the, the place where new opera was coming from, um, they never really went back to new works after World War One, um, and uh, and it has basically stayed that way until literally this year. I think like, you have it, a, a a dissertation thesis there, Weston. <laughs> I mean, I think that's fairly common knowledge if you're into the very specific sorts of things that I'm into. So maybe it's not common knowledge, um, but I do think that that is you know an important. I, I just think it's exciting because we are at like a big turning point in uh, Met history and yeah. by extension American opera history because um, we, we we definitely can't go back to the days of the Faust Spielhaus which is the nickname that it was given in its early days because they apparently just wanted to do Faust all the time <laughs> for, the, for the record I think uh, Romeo and Juliet is a much better opera than Faust. oh abs- it absolutely is you're right and you should say it um, yeah and uh, yeah I, I think you know we, we don't need to go back to the, the Faust days but maybe we can go back to the days of Otto von Bismarck when the Met was doing new relevant works. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that, I think that's a, a very interesting trend. I'll be excited to see. I hope those numbers keep going up. Um, I think it would be uh, I think it's encouraging. Um, numbers are still low. I just hope the endowment holds up long enough to get that new audience that they desperately need to survive. Good call, bad call. That's right now. Good call. Bad Call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. That's how we end the shows around these parts. Let's start with Oliver Camacho. Not to make this the Santa Fe Opera episode, but um, I want to good call Santa Fe Opera for doing a press release on their apprentice technicians uh, for the 23 season. They've announced 86 apprentices who work in audiovisual costumes, production, Stage crew, wigs and makeup, scenic arts, um, properties, electrics. Uh, that's cool. And I think that, you know, to just uh, highlight those young people who are, you know, getting their own career, um, get, trying to start a career in not singing and not stage directing, which I think are the apprentices who get called up more often. I think it's, it's a good thing. So uh, you guys keep doing that Santa Fe Opera. That that's that's the end of it. So, 
I forgot I was George in this scenario. Yeah. So, Matt Cummings, you're next. You're too used to not talking during Good Call, Bad Call, because he won't <laughs> let you. Matt. So, <laughs> I went home to Pittsburgh this weekend to, to see my family. And while I was there, I checked out the, um, a record store that's like a five-minute walk from my parents' house that apparently was written up in Rolling Stone about a decade ago as one of the best places to buy vinyl in the con- in the country. And um, I can second that because it's one of these stores where you like walk upstairs and you walk into this room where there's nothing and then you turn left and there are more records than I have ever seen in one place in my entire life. It just keeps going and going and going and going. Uh, And there's a huge room in the back full of all classical records. Uh, And I flew so I couldn't buy as many as I wanted to. But next time I drive home, I am taking several milk crates and buying this place out because they had really, really good stuff, including um, a recital disc from Elizabeth Schwarzkopf that has given me the inspiration for uh, a biopic where she is played by Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> Listeners, we're gonna put we're, like we're gonna share this photo in the show notes. Like it is uncanny. It, it is very un- uncanny valley, perhaps even uh, very spooky. I have a bad call, um, so. There is a very tenuous opera connection because this did happen as I was listening to Ellen Reed's Prism uh, on a walk uh, near where I live. And it is Red Wing Blackbird nesting season here in Chicago. And there's one little bastard who who is, partic- who is taking that very personally and attacking everyone as they walk by. And I did not know this while I was lis- listening and trying to enjoy Ellen Reed's Prism. And uh, I was walking, and all of a sudden, I get smacked in the back of the head by the angriest bird you've ever seen in your life. And the next thing you know, I'm running down the road trying to get away from uh, this terrible, terrible bird. And I think that's a bad call. That might just be me. All right, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes. OperaBoxScore at gmail.com is the email address. Find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, including that lovely picture of Kirsten Dunst. Uh, <laughs> OperaBoxScore.com is the website. That's always also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS on our donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editor is me. For co-hosts Matt Cummings and George Cedarquist and our guest David Alden, I'm Weston asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you finally garner positive reviews following the death of your secret husband, King Farouk I. We're back with an all-new show next week where you'll get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more beautiful etched crystal plaques bearing the likeness of the Greek-American soprano we claim as our own godmother. Join us.